Uh, well, welcome today. Glad to have you here. If you're new, my name is Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we're just uh, glad that you're joining us today. There is this story that appears in, the, uh, in John's account of Jesus' life. Uh, Jesus is talking to his disciples. And he begins to tell them all about heaven and that he is going to go there to prepare a place for them. And then he says to them, and you will know the way to get there. And there must have been this kind of awkward silence because Thomas, one of the disciples, puts up his hand and, and he decides to ask the question that probably everyone else is thinking, but, you know, doesn't have the courage to say. It's always good to have someone like that. He, he, he puts up his hand and says, like, well, Lord, we, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus responds, he says, Thomas, Thomas, he says this, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In fact, in the Greek version, in, in the version that John originally wrote, wrote when, when Jesus says, I, he says it twice. He literally says, I, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he goes on to explain that no one, doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what you believe, it doesn't matter where you, no one comes to God except through him. That's what Jesus says. There is no other way to God. Now, that, that's the kind of statement that has a tendency to get people fired up these days. The, the idea that, that, that Jesus is the only way to know God, especially in a pluralistic society like ours, and one that prides itself so much in being in, in, ex, inclusive. Because that kind of a statement is wildly exclusive. I mean, how can someone say in this day and age that there is only one way to know God? You know, one of the one of the finest teachers that my kids had when they were in elementary school was a lady in her, I think, mid-30s. She was brilliant and articulate and engaging and just an incredible teacher. She was always well put together and she was a deeply devoted practicing Muslim. How can you say to someone like that? I mean, when you meet her, how can you say, actually, what you believe is not the right way to know God? Or the realtor who helped us get uh, our place here in Maple Ridge, he's funny and so easy to talk to and engaging and one of the finest human beings you will ever meet. And he has no religious beliefs whatsoever. How, how can you say to him, well, actually, you're wrong in, in your beliefs. I mean, how can one person or one group of people claim to know the truth about God to the exclusion of what other people, many really good people, believe? I mean, that kind of a statement seems arrogant, it seems unkind, it seems condescending, and it's one of the aspects of the Christian faith that cause people to have questions and, and sometimes doubts. One woman put it this way, how could there be just one true faith? It's arrogant to say that your religion is superior and to try to convert everyone else to it. Surely all the religions are equally good and valid for meeting the needs of their particular followers. That's a pretty common view these days. So let's talk about it. Are all religions basically the same? Are, are they all just sort of different ways to climb the same mountain, but in the end you arrive at the same place? And aren't the claims of Jesus and Christianity incredibly exclusive? Well, let's start with that last question. Are, are the claims of Jesus and Christianity incredibly exclusive? And the answer to that is a definitive yes. They are incredibly exclusive, the claims that they make. But it turns out that all religions make exclusive claims. 
Hinduism, for example, claims that the divine is an impersonal force, a, a ultimate reality that's called Brahman, and that, and that it is manifest through many, many different gods and goddesses. Judaism, on the other hand, claims that there is only one God and that he is a deeply personal God. And Christianity, of course, believes that Jesus is the eternal Son of God and that therefore we should worship him as God. And Islam states that, that, there is no, that God has no son. They reject that idea emphatically. The Dalai Lama says that in Buddhism, there is so, no such thing as a creator. But both Islam and Judaism, as well as Christianity, believe that there is a creator. So it turns out that every religion makes exclusive claims. It's not just the Christian faith. But it's fascinating to note that it's not just religions that make exclusive claims. Those who are not religious also make all kinds of exclusive claims. For instance, those who are not religious will often say when we're talking about this topic that, that no one can make exclusive claims because God is unknowable or because God is all love and not wrath or because God is just a force out there, not a person that we can know through the scriptures. But all of those statements are actually beliefs. They, they, are, they are unprovable faith assumptions about God and spiritual reality. And so while they wouldn't say it, what they're really saying is that they believe that, that they have a superior way of viewing things. That everyone who holds to a traditional faith belief should really let that go. Anyone who holds to absolute truth should let that go and instead adopt their way of believing. Which means that they, their view is also an exclusive claim about the nature of spiritual reality. So when, when those who don't have any kind of religion say that if you make an exclusive claim, it's narrow-minded, they actually in a sense, are making their own sort of narrow-minded statement. It can't be that way. You see, it turns out that everyone makes exclusive claims, whether you're religious or not. Because as a human being, you have to make some kind of exclusive claim. You have to state some sort of belief that you hold that gives you the ground to stand on from which to see and engage in life and from which to judge other beliefs that people have. You can't be a human without stating what you believe. And because not everyone believes what you believe, whatever statement you make, whatever belief you hold, turns out to be at some, in some way or another exclusive. And not all those statements can be right. Not, not unless you abandon logic. You, you can't both be a God and not be a God. And, and God cannot be both personal and impersonal. And he can't both have a son named Jesus and not have a son named Jesus. And he can't both be the creator of the world and not be the creator of the world. It's impossible. It's illogical. Someone is right and the others are wrong. But sometimes people say, no, 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 no. No, no, everyone, when it comes to religion, everyone's right. They just are right in their own different ways. And they'll talk about this parable. They'll say, look, there's this parable about an elephant 
There's this elephant and there's these blind men walking down the road and they, and they come to this elephant and the elephant lets them touch them. And one blind man says, oh, this creature is like a, a long, flexible snake because he's just feeling the elephant's trunk. And the next blind man says, no, 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 you're all wrong. This creature is like a round, strong trunk of a tree because he's holding the elephant's leg. And then the next blind man says, you're both wrong. This, this creature is big and large and flat because he's touching the side of the elephant. And they'll say, see, the parable says that, shows us that, that all religions are right in part, but none of them are actually, have the whole truth, the, the, the full understanding. And so you see, it sounds good. It sounds like a humble way of talking about faith and making sure that everyone feels right. But, but the question is this, in the parable, who sees the whole elephant? Who has the whole picture of reality? It's the person who tells the parable, isn't it? See, the person who tells that parable is in essence saying that they have a better understanding of who God is. They see the whole picture of who God is better than all of the religions of the world combined because all the rest of the religions only see a part of what that person sees the whole. Now, I hate to point out the obvious, but that's actually a fairly arrogant statement to make. In fact, not only that, but if you claim that pretty much all religions are the same, it's not only arrogant, but it's unkind and, and kind of embarrassing. It, it, it doesn't sound that way, but it is. To say to a Muslim that what they believe, what they are passionate, what they, what they have thought carefully about and in some ways stake their life on, to say it's basically the same as what a Buddhist believes, is to trivialize their beliefs. You're saying that they're basically interchangeable and not really that important. That kind of a statement, that, that is not only shows a incredible lack of just most the elementary knowledge of religion, but it's deeply respect, disrespectful to those who hold those kinds of questions. So the statements that float around out there that sound so humble and, 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 and you know, inclusive turn out to be actually quite arrogant and exclusive in their nature. But before we get all judgy as those who are Christians, because we're not that way, you know, we just need to be aware that it's actually those who hold religious faith that are much more likely to become arrogant because there's this powerful combination of, 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 of knowing the truth and because we, we know the truth and we have this tendency to look down upon others. And then you add God into there and say, well, God is this way. God told me. So it becomes very easy for us to become arrogant. And we need to guard ourselves against that. Especially in this culture that we find ourselves living in. You know, every once in a while, I will meet somebody who is like such a nice person. They're friendly and outgoing and funny and interesting. And, and I begin to think to myself, I think I could be friends with this person until, and they don't usually tell me this at the beginning, but somewhere along the way, until they tell me that, that they cheer for the Edmonton Oilers. And, and then I'm like, I, you know, I just don't know if we can be friends anymore. Of course, of course we're joking, but, but more and more in our culture, that isn't a joke. More and more our culture has come to believe that to disagree with someone's beliefs no longer means that you simply you know, disagree with them about that. 
To disagree with a person's belief somehow has now come to mean that you must disagree with the person as a whole. It's where this whole cancer, cancel culture has kind of grown up. And we might not cancel them from all of culture, but sometimes the tendency is to simply cancel them out of our lives if they have different beliefs than, beliefs than we do. And as Christians, as followers of Jesus, that should never be the case for us. As a Christian, you should have no problem with an atheist claiming that the vast majority of humanity around the world and throughout history is wrong in their belief about God. Because see, that's the, that's the nature of the conversation. It's necessary to have the kinds of conversations about these kinds of things. It's all right for an atheist to believe that you as a Christian are dead wrong when it comes to faith. And it's okay for a Muslim to believe that a Jewish person is wrong. And it's even all right for a Christian to believe that a Hindu is wrong. And probably the Buddhists figure we're all wrong. It's okay. As Christians, we should defend the right of everyone to believe and to think differently. Because when we do that, then we treat them with, with dignity and love and respect. And we're acknowledging that what they believe is not trivial or, or, or purely subjective. In fact, what you will find if you think about it carefully is that you can agree with all kinds of beliefs that other people have. C.S. Lewis writes this. If you're a Christian, you do not have to believe that all the other religions are simply wrong all through and through. If you're an atheist, you do have to believe that the main point in all religions of the whole world is simply one huge mistake. If you're a Christian, you're free to think that all those religions, even the strangest ones, contain at least some hint of the truth. When I was an atheist, I had to try to persuade myself that most of the human race have always been wrong about the questions that matter to them most. When I became a Christian, I was able to take a more generous view. But of course, being a Christian now means thinking that where Christianity differs from other religions, Christianity is right and they're wrong. As in arithmetic, there's only one right answer to a sum and all the other answers are wrong. But some of the wrong answers are much nearer to being right than others. You understand what he's saying? Lewis is saying this, that as Christians, we're free to believe that there is truth in all kinds of religions. We don't have to dismiss them and say they're completely and utterly wrong because there is much in those religions and in those who don't hold a faith that is good and true and noble in them, even though they disagree with Christianity. And where they do, there we, agree, we hold that we're right and they're wrong. But whether people have a faith of some sort or none at all, we should always engage them with a humility and an open heart, even as we hold to the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ. Because that's what Jesus himself did. I mean, he, he made these absolute truth claims. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And at the same time, he was radically inclusive and loving towards all kinds of people that thought differently and, and held different and lived different lifestyles. Prostitutes and tax collectors and Roman centurions and, uh, you know, political zealots. And this is what the first disciples did too. There's a story in the book of Acts about uh, just after the church was begun. And Peter and John were going up to the, the temple one day to pray. And, and there was this, this lame man who was begging at the entrance to the temple. 
And this lame man had been born lame, and he was now 40 years old, and every day his family had brought him here to the entrance of the temple to beg for money. And when Peter and John came by, he begged from them, and they said, no, we don't have money to give you, but what we can do for you is, is, is see that you're healed. And so in Jesus' name, they healed this lame man, and he suddenly gets up after 40 years of being lame and walks into the temple and is jumping and, and walking and praising God. And you can imagine that drew a crowd. Everyone there knew this man. And so they gather around. And, and so Peter and John begin to explain what happened and, and, and how Jesus had been resurrected from the dead. And, and they, in the heart of the Jewish faith, in the most holy place of the Jewish faith, they proclaim the risen Jesus. Well, you can imagine that didn't go over super well with the powerful religious leaders who were there. And so they have him arrested, these two disciples arrested and put in prison overnight. And the next day, they bring them before this group of incredibly powerful religious leaders. And, and the book of Acts chapter 4 tells us what happens. It says this, The next day the rulers and elders and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? They want to know how it was possible. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked uh, uh, and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. By what power? He says, by the power of Jesus Christ. And then he says this, he makes this statement in verse 12. He says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by, my, by which we must be saved. Now Peter makes a statement that echoes the statement that Jesus made. It's an incredibly exclusive statement. The only way that you may be saved, the only way that you may know God is through Jesus Christ. Now what is... What is Peter saying here? Why, why is Jesus the only way? Well, Peter, Peter is using the, the, the example of the lame man as a picture of why Jesus is the only way to God. See, the lame man, is, uh, you remember, is born lame. It's just how he was from the beginning. He, he, he's always been lame. He, he would always be lame no matter what he tried. There was nothing that he could do to fix it on his own. He was doomed to a life of being lame unless, unless something supernatural happened in his life. And it's the picture of us. We were born as sinners. It's just part of our nature from the very beginning of our lives. And, and somehow, no matter how hard we try on our own, we can't solve the problem of sin. In our own lives, in the world around us, there's just this brokenness and this, this, this heartache and this evil that is done in the world around us, and we can't seem to fix it. There's this, uh, these great sort of dueling quotes by the writer H.G. Wells. The first uh, that I want to read for you is written in, a, in a, a book called A Short History of the World. It was written, in the, it's important to note, it was written in the year 1937. 
Listen to what he says. Can we doubt that presently our race will more than realize our boldest imaginations, that it will achieve unity and peace, and that our children will live in a world made more splendid and lovely than any palace or garden that we know, going on from strength to strength in an ever-widening circle of achievement? What man has done, the little triumphs of his present state, form but the prelude to the things that man has yet to do. There's such optimism. Look where we've come from. Look where we're going. Look at what we've accomplished. He writes this in 1937, two years before the outbreak of World War II. It's fascinating what he writes just nine years later. One year after the ending of World War II, here's what he writes. The cold-blooded massacres of the defenseless, the return of deliberate and organized torture, mental torment and fear to a world from which such things had seemed well-nigh banished has come near to breaking my spirit altogether. Homo sapiens, as he has been pleased to call himself, is played out. In 1937, Wells said, we're banishing sin and evil from the world. We're going to do it. We're going to make it happen. And nine years later, after World War II, he says, I think it's impossible. And 80, 80 years on from that time, 80 years on, and the sin and the brokenness in our world continue unabated. Clearly, the problem isn't just a lack of education and ignorance. It's much deeper than that. It's a heart issue. It's it's selfishness and pride and jealousy and hatred. And none of us asked for it. None of us got up in the morning and said, oh, I wish I was more selfish. I wish I I was more jealous. None of us ask for that. And yet somehow it just wells up in us. And and as hard as we try, we can't seem to control it. We push it down here and it squirts out somewhere else. It's as if we are born spiritually lame. And no matter how hard we try, we can't fix that problem in our lives. The Apostle Paul, he describes it very well in his letter to the church in Rome. He writes this. He says, so I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Who will rescue me from the power of sin in my life that I just can't seem to defeat on my own? The question that the religious leaders asked Peter and John is this, by what power or in what name was this lame man able to walk? Because no one can do that themselves. No no one can escape from the power of sin themselves. And their answer by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Why is Jesus the only way? Albert Muller puts it this way. If all we need is a teacher of enlightenment, the Buddha will do. If all we need is a collection of gods for every occasion and need and hope, Hinduism will do. If all we need is a tribal deity, any tribal deity will do. If all we need is a lawgiver, Moses will do. 
If all we need is a set of rules and a way of devotion, Muhammad or Joseph Smith will do. If all uh, we need is inspiration and insight into the sovereign self, Oprah will do. But if we need a savior, only Jesus will do. Only Jesus paid the price for your sins and mine. Only Jesus rose again as a sign of what God will do for those who put their trust in him. Only Jesus can break the power of sin in your life and give you the, lead, lead you into a life of freedom. Only Jesus can put the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, into your life to give you the kind of power and strength to resist the sin in your life, give you new life. See, every other religion stands behind you and tells you what you need to do. Only Jesus goes before you and makes a way and then gives you the strength to follow him. That's why Jesus is the only way to God. That's why he is the way and the truth and the life. And this is why Peter and John tell the most powerful religious leaders in the land that they stand before him humble and confident and proclaim the truth. And it's fascinating to see how they respond. Listen to the response. Verse 13. When they, the religious leaders saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Man, that's a great line. When they saw the courage, when they realized that these men weren't like PhDs with all sorts of fancy, multiple education, they took note and realized that these guys knew Jesus. There's this, uh, there's this uh, book that I, I read a while back. It's a great book. Uh, it's uh, by a guy named Larry Taunton. It's called The Faith of Christopher Hitchens. Now, if that name Christopher Hitchens rings a bell, it's because he, uh, Christopher Hitchens was one of the new atheists. He was uh, uh, one of the most famous atheists. In fact, he wrote a New, a new York Times bestseller book called God is Not Great. And I read it. And man, he's nasty towards those who have religious beliefs. He just pours scorn upon people who, who believe in God. Uh, he believes that religion poisons everything. But after he wrote that book, it shot up the, the New York Times bestseller list. And so he decided to go on a tour to debate all kinds of religious people because he wanted to show that their belief was a sham, to pour scorn on it, and of course, to sell books. And so he decided to go to the southern United States, to the, to the buckle of the Bible belt, so to speak. And there he engaged in a, a number of debates with a number of Christian people, including a man, a Christian man named Larry Taunton, the guy who wrote this book. And they would go up on a stage before vast crowds of people and have this passionate debate about whether, you know, religion, faith in God was good or not. And, and, and there would be this deep, passionate debate, but it was always civil and, and courteous towards one another, even as they debated back and forth. But after the debate was done, after it was done, these two guys would go out for dinner together and they'd talk some more into the evening. And they began to do that regularly. And, and in fact, they, they began to travel from one location to another because they'd booked a number of these debates in different cities. And the strangest thing happened. Larry Taunton, the deeply devoted Christian man, and Christopher Hitchens, the 
wildly active atheists became friends. In fact, after that, a much even a, a, a more stranger thing happened. Uh, Christopher Hitchens, who hated religion, Taunton writes this: He Hitchens found himself liking evangelical Christians. They were eager to debate him and defended their beliefs. Yes, but they were also inviting him out to dinner and a drink afterwards, and that's what he really came to admire: the combination of deep and sincere convictions, which doctrine waffling liberal Christians had set aside and a willingness to defend those convictions into polite debate, wrapped in the warmth of the justly famed tradition of Southern hospitality. Declared Hitchens, I much prefer this to the vague waffling of the interfaith and ecumenical groups who barely respect their own traditions and who look upon faith as just another word for community organizing. And Hitchens got, went on to, to get to know Taunton and his, his wife so well that they invited him into his home, and, and there he met their daughter, and their daughter was a girl from, uh, that they had adopted from another nation, a girl with AIDS. And it moved uh, Christopher Hitchens deeply uh, because they had adopted this girl at a great personal cost uh, to themselves. And Hitchens knew that it wasn't just Christians who adopted children from around the world, although a large portion of those who do are Christians. But, but what he saw there was their faith in, in action in a very practical way. It was one thing for, <laughs> excuse me, for Hitchens to, to debate religion on a stage. It was another to see people of faith live it out in a very practical, very real way around it. And it moved him deeply. Taunton went on to write this. Peter Hitchens, Christopher's son, says that Christopher loathed Christians. In, in this, he is wrong. I know Christopher said it, but it simply isn't true. I know this because I'm a Christian, and Christopher certainly did not loathe me. Christopher loathed intellectual frauds that didn't really believe their creed, but instead preyed on the innocent for selfish gain. In truth, Christopher deeply respected genuine Christian belief when he encountered it. Christopher's motives in debating evangelicals had taken on an additional dimension. Yes, he still wanted to promote his brand, sell his books, and make money, but he had now begun to seriously investigate an expression of Christianity that was heretofore unknown to him, evangelical Christianity. Isn't that fascinating? One of the world's leading atheists, a man whose professional career was built on attacking religion and Christianity, meets a man and a bunch of his friends who hold deeply to the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ but who, are, who aren't arrogant at all, and instead, like Jesus, are radically inclusive. And they invite into their world the very man who publicly pours scorn on everything that they believe, and they become his friend. And in the process, the famous atheist is drawn to Jesus. Now, there's no evidence that in the end that Christopher Hitchens gave his life to follow Jesus. He died of cancer-related complications in the year 2011. But his attitude towards those who genuinely believed and sought to follow Jesus profoundly changed even if he publicly, didn't publicly proclaim it. It's like the story in Acts. When the religious leaders grilled Peter and John, they, they were arrested and standing before the court of these high, powerful religious leaders. And it might have been tempting for 
Peter and John to downplay their connection to Jesus, to talk about God in the most vaguest, most general terms, to, to allow them to assume that they basically believe the same thing, just kind of from a little bit different direction. But they didn't. And they, instead, they spoke with both courage and humility. And, and, and those who opposed them, although they didn't agree with them or even like it, they could tell that these men had genuine faith, that they had been with Jesus. And they respected that. In a world that pressures us to say nothing about our faith, or if we insist to at least keep our conversation about God to the most generic, vaguest thing possible. There is something that is beautiful and refreshing about boldly and confidently expressing the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ. But the key to doing that, the, 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 the reason why we have an opportunity to do that is only if we are deeply humble as we do that. And only if we remember that those that we engage with also hold deeply held, thoughtful beliefs. You see, it's rare that someone changes their mind on something as deeply held as their worldview without time to think about it and without a safe place, without a safe relationship to actually explore what others believe. And that happens when we engage people in real friendships and invite them into our lives and into our communities and allow them to watch us as we seek to follow Jesus in the very real ways in our life as best as we can. But when that happens, it's surprising how many people say, I want to know more. Are the claims of Jesus exclusive? Absolutely. Without question. And yet, when you go deeper, you find out that he is the way, the truth, and the life. That it is through Jesus that we end up in a relationship with God. Let's be bold as we go and share in humility the good news of Jesus. Now, would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the truth of your word. God, we thank you that you did send Jesus, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. But God, that he came not just to tell us about it, but to make a way and then, and then to give us your Holy Spirit that we might live in it. So God, would you help us to be obedient to what your spirit calls us to, to live in light of that. Father, to continue to, to follow you. And Lord, where we engage the world around us, Lord, may we have a courage and a boldness to express the very truth of what Jesus says. But God, to do it in such a way that people are drawn to you, to do it in such a way that is deeply respectful of others, and yet calls them to engage, to, to think of what Jesus really says. So Lord, would you lead us, would you guide us, and would you work through us as we are faithful to what you call us to do? We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you for coming and joining us today as we think about these questions, as we wrestle with them, as we see what the word of God says and then apply that into our lives. And today I want to send you out again with uh, these beautiful words from... Uh, John's account of Jesus' life. John chapter 3 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him.
May God bless you as you go and as you share the good news of what Jesus did with the world around you. Have a great week and we'll see you next Sunday.